Now on Documentary on News Talk, as part of a series of three programmes, producer Patricia Baker looks at the life and work of three women who broke ground for future generations. In this episode, a former Supreme Court judge and member of the Council of State of Ireland, who has been involved in some of the most important children's and women's rights and child protection changes in Ireland. This is Groundbreakers, Catherine McGuinness. Our rights, as women, as children, as men, as workers, as migrants, who decides them? That is the question that was in my mind as I made this documentary. For so long, our thinking about rights was constrained by Catholic doctrine. But as a country, we have changed. We have become more inclusive, more progressive. This evolution did not just happen overnight. It took the hard work of women and men activists and lawyers and we need to thank the older generation the groundbreakers who made this change women such as Catherine McGuinness she was born in 1934 and the country has benefited from decades of her activism and brilliant legal mind she changed the tide of course because when Catherine McGuinness speaks on an issue everyone sits up and everyone listens Tanya Ward, Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance. She is one of the most significant women in terms of what she's achieved for women, for children and for human rights more generally. Catherine McGuinness is, I think, an extraordinary figure in Irish law. Dr David Kenny, Associate Professor of Law, Trinity College, Dublin. Both for her work as a crusading lawyer also as a legislator in the the Shannon, and then as, I think, one of our most interesting and insightful judges, and a judge that I think always fought for vulnerable groups and marginalised groups and had just a huge impact in that respect. It's very hard to sum up her impact because it was so great. She's involved in some of the most important children's rights changes um, and child protection changes in the country. And Catherine was first to call for a referendum to rewrite the constitution to make sure that children would be seen and would be heard. And what you see is over the years is that she happens to be involved in all the key developments that make an enormous difference. As judge of the Circuit Court, High Court and Supreme Court, as chair of the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation, the foundation of the Northern Ireland peace process, as president of the Law Reform Commission, as member of the Council of State, to name but a few. I met Catherine in her home in Dublin. I was understandably nervous to meet this woman who's had such a wide impact on the rights of people living in Ireland. I mean, you're, you're intimidated because, you know, you see the career that she's led and, and then when you meet her, she's so approachable. Catherine is approachable. She's a tiny, elderly, elegant lady who is warm and welcoming and loves to chat. Well, I mean, I, I can keep talking, all right. There's no difficulty about that. Her warmth and kindness, her small ladylike figure, her gentle tone makes her easy to connect to. She has a fragility and softness in her look, but this is forgotten when she starts to talk. For Catherine is renowned for her critical thinking her focused intellect, her steely mind. Her personality is is a very warm and welcoming one, but no, she certainly doesn't take prisoners when it comes to what is absolutely right. Carl Coulter, 
Executive Director of the Child Law Project and former Legal Affairs Editor of the Irish Times. She doesn't hold back either from criticising the government. I mean, particularly on things like refugees. She was patron of the Irish Refugee Council. Certainly very forthright in relation to what she perceives, and perceives usually correctly, to be wrong in the way things are done. And she's able to say things without offending people. And she's able to say very critical and very devastating things. And that's the thing about her style is she's able to be very honest and upfront. And at the same time, she's able to bring people with her and she's able to connect. A warm, kind, gentle woman with a steely mind. Well, there's definitely a steeliness. Former President of Ireland, barrister, former UN Commission of Human Rights, Chair of the Elders, climate justice campaigner, Mary Robinson. She's held in huge affection by other women, I know that, including me. Affection for the stands that she's taken, the role that she's played. She is somebody that warrants a documentary of this kind. You are highly regarded and loved, I would say, from the people I have talked to. <laughs> I mean, it's not... Uh, uh, well, I suppose I was there from the beginning of, of um, you know, women practising in the law. I mean, I've just been around for a longer time. Indeed, Catherine has been around for a long time, but not as an observer, but as a change maker. To listen to her story is also to get an insight into how the law has evolved, how reform happens. Catherine has lived and worked through the decades when women and children's rights moved away from a church-dominated ethos. She lived through a time when women could not keep their jobs in the public service or banks when they got married, where they could not sit on juries, where women did not have the same social welfare entitlements as men, where women had no right to share ownership in their family home. They had no right to inherit. Their husband could sell their family home without their consent. All these changes in how women work, inherit, marry, have children, all these changes ultimately happened through the law. Gráinne Larkin, barrister, junior counsel and co-founder for the First Women's Working Group on the Bar Council. Yeah, it's no doubt about it. There's a number of practitioners that have litigated the rights of women so that they are now something that we just come to accept as part of Irish society. The word trailblazer sometimes is overused, but, it, you know, there was unknown territory to go against sometimes the church for societal change and you are right like every major leap forward again for women's rights emanates often from the court and from those female practitioners how few they were at the time trying to influence change in the way that they could and none more so than Catherine McGuinness. Catherine was one of a group of trailblazing women and men who fought for reform. I have heard it said how nuanced Catherine is in her thinking that she is a woman of great complexity. Her own background embodies different identities. She's a clergyman's daughter married to a nationalist born in Belfast, educated in Dublin. She jokingly refers to herself as a cross-border body. Cross-border body, <laughs> yes. Well, I, I have sometimes used that, that phrase because I was somebody who came from the North, very proud of having come from the North, as you might know, I came from a sort of mixed background in that I was born and brought up in Northern Ireland, but I went to secondary school 
here in Dublin. My father, who was a Church of Ireland clergyman, was born in West Clare. And my mother came from Tullamore, that they were working in Northern Ireland, so that you had both the kind of Northern Ireland background and here. You know, when I grew up as a student in Trinity, you were kind of foreign and yet native, as it were, in Dublin. You looked at the Irish government from um, a slightly different point of view, perhaps, and there was the extraordinarily strong influence of the Catholic Church during that period created a position for women as well as everything else. While I think she's a whole cross-border background, her heart has always been with those who are not privileged. Well, I think when Catherine, who was an activist really going back to the 1960s, and I think we need to remember that, uh, and she was unusual at that time, of course, in that while she was married and she had a family, she did work outside the home all the time. Catherine was married to Prunchis McAnissa, a journalist, writer, broadcaster and Irish language activist. Prunchis was a very well-known broadcaster. See, he came from Connemara and he, was, he came from a background of Irish-speaking people. So I had both these in the background They have three children. A daughter and two sons, and they have families of their own. There's various grandchildren around the place. Do you enjoy being a granny? Oh, yes, 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 I always have. And uh, I mean, I've always been used to having uh, having all the family around for the Sunday dinner every Sunday for years. You talk to, on a personal level, about the juggle. We all do, particularly, I think, as women, when you juggle family life and you juggle careers. By the time I, I took up the law, my children were kind of into sort of well out at school. And, and so it was perhaps a bit more easy to organise that, although they could tell you, no doubt, what level of neglect I had. <laughs> but that's sort of between them and me. We're still friends anyway. Tell me about the choir and your voice and how important that was for you. All my life I've sung in choirs. Certainly I would have started as a child in church choirs. I mean, I was the clergyman's daughter. You had to join the church choir. So I belonged to the Colwick Choral Society for oh, well over 50 years. I mean, you could feel... Uh, at the verge of despair, absolutely, and then go in and rehearse the singing for an evening and you would come out completely washed out of all that kind of dreadfulness washed out of you. And, be, you know, the singing make, made a huge difference to my life. I've, I have always, I've always loved it. but particularly in that prior to her becoming a lawyer, uh, she was a member of the Adoption Board. She was a a very active member of the Labour Party. She was a senator. She became a lawyer as a result of her experience in society, as a result of her experience in campaigning in other areas. Then uh, during the 1960s, shortly after I left college and when I was first married, I was working for quite some time as a parliamentary officer for the Labour Party at the time. And so 
I was involved in legislation and in the development of the law in that sense uh, through the political system. And you became quite clear at that stage what was the position of women and indeed the position of children in the law all through that time. As Carol Coulter said, Catherine came late to the law. She was in her 40s when she first began to study the law. Yes, uh, you want to start from there. I mean, I decided I'd have a go at this anyway, so I went and qualified in the King's Inns. It was just as I studied the law in the King's Inns, I became more and more interested in ways in which you thought the law ought to be changed. When you joined first, was there many women there? When I first, there were, there were actually quite a few women in the class that I was in. But when you get, went into the law library immediately after qualifying, there were very few women proportionately speaking. And some men certainly didn't regard your presence there as particularly welcome. I certainly remember one gentleman who looked me up and down and said, I can't think why you're not at home minding your children and things like that. But... And there weren't very many women as exemplars for you. The one that I really remember is Judge Mella Carroll, the first woman high court judge. I remember the day that we were first putting on our wigs for being called to the bar. She specifically said, you know, don't let them say you can't do it because you're a woman. There's plenty of opportunity for you to keep trying. There were people before us. But not that many, I suppose. It's relatively new, um, women entering the profession to work as barristers in Ireland. In 1921, the first two women were called, and that was following um, the introduction of an act in 1919, which had allowed women to enter a number of professions, including the being a barrister. Following on from them, there is quite a gap over the years before there was any real substantial uptake in the number of female entrants into the profession. And you're talking about maybe 50 years before you started to see the numbers starting to come in in any real sense of making a a difference or a demographic of women entering the profession. There would have been a number of, I suppose, societal bias towards women acting in that profession. So as much as allowing entry into the profession, you can only survive in it if you're going to be supplied with work and that work is made available to you. And I suppose because it was still a novelty or uh, unusual to see a woman in that job, I can only imagine that that was something that lent itself to being a tougher career for women. When you look at it now, when you look at it from the outside, the thing that has changed enormously is the number of of women judges that uh, you look across the board that there's a very high level of women judges, much more so here and at a much more senior level here than, for instance, in the in England, where it took them a very long time to get more than Lady Hale into the Supreme Court. The image of women at the bar has changed and thankfully has changed to a more inclusive profession and there's certainly more women present, but we still struggle with women at the hierarchy of our profession in terms of retention of numbers um, and retention of senior counsel, uh, particularly at the moment where it's quite laudable that the government are trying to appoint more female judges. But what it has meant is that it has depleted the already scarce numbers of female senior counsels. So there is only 13% of senior counsel that are women, evidence of a reflection that people are trying to have a work-life balance and if they want to achieve a family, 
There are time pressures in doing that. And they're the years where you need to establish a good practice and a platform to maybe take silk one day in my job or potentially apply to be a judge. And they're the years where you're time poor. And that's very hard if you decide to have a family or if you're caring for parents and lots of things that can fall to you. Do you know, I, I I'm getting old, but I kind of find this just so weary that we're still having this conversation and it's still the same gap. It's like, yeah, of course, you've equal quality getting in, but then when it comes to childcare and that caring role, it's mm. the, there's this massive gap. It's, it's very interesting you say that. You know, I suppose the ultimate concern is whether it's access to work and whether or not certain work is gendered work if I can describe it as that work that is associated with women and other work that is difficult to get into if you are a woman and you look across the the bar and the solicitor's profession again there are an awful lot more women than they were but are the women in the crucial positions how many of the women in big solicitors practices, for instance, are the managing partners, are they the, the leading people? When you look at it that way and at the bar, there are a lot of women in the criminal law and in family law and in various other parts of the law, but not nearly so many in the, the really money-making part of the bar, which is, this is a bad way of looking at it, I know, but it is a test of where you're going, you know, in the balance of women and men in the bar. So there's still areas to fight, but not that many. I think we're, on the whole, uh, on the, there are other professions, I'd imagine, that are that, that have further to go. A lot of work has been done including mentoring to support women in law. Though, as Catherine says, there is still more to be done. But acknowledging the work of women trailblazers is crucial. So we never take for granted how far we have come or become complacent in that progression. As mentioned in the beginning, Catherine fought in many different ways as lawyer and legislator. Oh, well, I was a senator in the 1980s. I was already qualified in the law when I was in the Senate. Uh, of course, I was there at the same time as Mary Robinson, so Mary and I were able to fight together on quite a number of different issues. That was very helpful. You were involved in the in the law from both sides of it, from sort of working at it as a barrister, but at the same time trying to improve the law as a legislator. I really enjoyed doing that. But of course, in the end, I lost my seat and that was that, you know, <laughs> It didn't worry me too much, you know. It didn't, you didn't like it at the time, but I remember going into the law library just after I'd lost it and meeting Paddy McEntee, who said, well, now is your time to take silk. Now you've lost the Senate seat, go ahead and take silk. So I said, all righty, oh, so well, I suppose we'll try that and see. <laughs> I'm very proud of being a lawyer. I have a great sense of pride in the legal profession, actually, and I think that though... We get a fair amount of abuse as lawyers, uh, all the different views that people have of lawyers. On the other hand, I think that we have worked to generally look for rights for people one way or another and for protecting people who are in weak situations. Yeah, I think it's important that we appreciate the 
lawyers and judges who do bring about social change, crusading lawyers, Mary Robinson being one, who went out of their way to try and use the constitution and the courts to drag us in particular directions. And often, if you look back, you will see inflection points where our social history maybe changes just this little bit, but this very significant little bit because of the work of judges and lawyers in this particular respect. And I think for lawyers in particular, that work goes on in the background. They're not known about, they're not talked about. I, I, I think this would be a mistake to think, though, that I went into the law saying, I need these things to be changed or whatever. I went into the law to try to learn to practice as a barrister. When you start as a barrister, you take whatever work you can get. You, you only want to get some, some small kind of bit of work that you might actually get paid for is the first thing that you're looking for. You're not really saying, I'm going in there and I'm going to change the law. I would first certainly have started off with the ordinary kind of car accidents and things like that that everybody else does. Yeah, to establish yourself, but equally, you can't divorce yourself from who you are. And she's so principled and she's so, she has such strong determination in her belief to follow through. You know, as much as you want to earn a living and act in a career, I think when you're studying law, when you're getting interested in law, you are interested in people's rights and the vindication of them. And you know what a privileged position it is to be an advocate for someone, to speak on their behalf. And no one knows that better than Catherine McGuinness. I think probably what happened was that the whole idea of having any kind of a practice in family law only started around the time I was began to practice where the legislation that provided for wives in, in marriage to have any rights at all really only developed in late 1970s, 1980s. I think the development of that kind of law that people began to have a practice in the family courts which would have included myself, but included other people who were practising at the same time. But during the ordinary practice, it was more just trying to work out the way in which children's rights could be looked after. Because I did work for the Eastern Health Board, for instance, where there were children coming into care. But certainly she made a huge impact. I remember a number of cases where we were on different sides in the family court of something affecting the rights of a child. And Catherine always made it clear to me that whatever we as lawyers were doing, it was the child that had to get priority. We're uh, more united for the interests of the child than caring about our individual client, if you know what I mean. And it was she who very much put forward that principle, that it was the interests of the child that had to be predominant. If you practice in family law generally, you would see the the limit of the kind of rights that children had. I think really it was the way in which the Constitution was drawn, of course, did subsume children's rights very much into the rights of the parents. I think the Constitution is, in a seemingly paradoxical way, both the source of so many of our rights, but it can also be a barrier to people getting their rights recognised as well. The Constitution can be a huge protection for you if your rights are included within the rights that the Constitution envisaged, you know, back in 1937 and developed a little bit by the courts. But if 
there's some blind spot in those rights. If some group was excluded or if some interest wasn't properly valued, then you can have a situation where the constitution can be a barrier to justice because it being the primary and most powerful source of our rights, if the constitution excludes something or if the constitution doesn't put enough weight on a particular uh, set of rights or a particular group of people, it can actually act uh, as a real hindrance and a real barrier. And I think that is one of the things that led to the reform of the Constitution in respect of children's rights was this concern that the Constitution in not specifically protecting the rights of children in independent terms was becoming a a real hindrance to certain social policy objectives and certain state actions to try and make the lives of children better and it risked children being forgotten in certain legal and, and constitutional situations. And that it was necessary that children's rights should be stated explicitly so that if there were issues within a family, the rights of the family couldn't trump those of children. Catherine, uh, shortly before she became a judge, she was the chair of the Kilkenny Incest Tribunal. That related to the abuse of a girl within her family by her father over a long number of years. At that time there wasn't really an understanding that children were being abused in their homes. With the Kilkenny incest inquiry, she peeled back the veneer that the family was not always a safe place for children. It was the first suggestion that it might be our constitutional structures and our legal structures that created some of the hesitancy on behalf of our authorities to intervene to protect children. And she put that protection of children front and centre in that report. And that was, I think, the intellectual foundation of what became the children's rights referendum in 2012. A referendum that established the rights of children separate to those of the family unit. As David explained, our constitution has evolved through referendums and through judges interpreting the constitution in a progressive way. One of the most important things that ever happened in our constitutional law was judges recognising that there were rights in the constitution beyond those rights that were written down in the text. And what happened was there was a particular phrase in in Article 40.3 of the constitution, which contains some of the core personal rights protections. It says that your rights are protected in particular, your life, person, good name and property. And what the courts ultimately said was that that phrase in particular suggests that those rights are protected, but other rights are protected as well. There are rights not specifically written down that form part of your personal rights in the Constitution. And perhaps the most famous of those cases and the most consequential for Irish politics is a case called McGeehan Attorney General from the early 1970s, which essentially caused the legalisation of contraception in Ireland, which at that point was almost entirely banned. It was a criminal offence to either sell or import contraceptives into the country. And Mrs May McGee was a married woman who didn't want to have any more children for very serious medical reasons. And she had tried to import contraception and it was impounded by customs. And so she took this case all the way to the Supreme Court, saying that she had a right to marital privacy, privacy within her marriage, which included a right for her and her husband to choose to use contraceptives. And the Supreme Court agreed this right of privacy existed that wasn't anywhere specifically written down in the Constitution. So the Constitution can be a a huge sort of expansionary source of rights if either 
the, the rights are in the text and the courts can interpret them in a broad and interesting way, or the courts are willing to say the Constitution implies that these rights exist, even though it doesn't explicitly say it. But if that's not possible, if the Constitution is silent about your rights, and if the courts aren't willing to expand the Constitution's protection to protect whatever rights you think you might deserve, then the Constitution can be a cold comfort. But was there, is there, in your opinion, the sense that what the, what the courts were doing was far more progressive in terms of human rights than what the Dáil was doing at that time? And is that because the Dáil maybe didn't have a good understanding of what society was actually in Ireland, or was it the control of the church? It's certainly the case that at various periods during this sort of implied or unenumerated rights era where the courts were recognising new rights, they were often more progressive and sort of ahead of the, 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 the social curve compared to our legislators. Given how slowly our political system has brought in change, I think it actually, you know, is something very positive about our system. We've, we have an independent judiciary and they have been prepared to be quite creative in the past, ensuring that, that people's rights were recognised and were upheld. However, the real campaigning efforts that I would have seen close up were around the referenda in the 1980s. There were two really seminal referenda. One was the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution to introduce a ban on abortion into the Constitution. And as everybody knows, abortion was already illegal. But despite that, there was that very, very bitter campaign fought to insert a new amendment, which eventually, of course, was overturned relatively recently. And then secondly, a campaign to remove the ban on divorce in 1986. And both of those were respectively lost by the Liberal side. But Catherine was a very central figure, actually, in campaigning on both of those. Uh, I remember going out through the pours of rain, going round making speeches, speaking in rural venues on behalf of divorce was hardly popular. <laughs> then the whole thing falling apart in your ears, as it were, and going. But uh, and that was when she was a barrister, but before she was a judge, because obviously when she became a judge, she could no longer campaign publicly on things. So there was a, a different phase to her work. I couldn't be involved in advocacy. You mightn't always want to be uninvolved, but the rule was the rule and you had to stick to it. It can be very hard not to. I mean, I would have been a judge during the time when the second referendum about divorce was taking place. And, of course, I would have been involved in the previous one that was lost so that I would have expect, been the sort of person who would be expected to to advocate for the introduction of divorce. But of course, I couldn't do that because I was a judge. So I was kind of sitting there biting my nails and watching the thing. You you may remember that it was so close of a vote that we were there, you know, kind of saying, you know, will we win, will we, will we not win? Uh, but I, I had to keep my mouth very firmly shut. It was a different place to be somehow, although it was hugely interesting. Well, having seen how committed Catherine was in her practice of law and, you know, how she always saw the higher issue, as I say, of the best interest of the child in family cases and so on, I was very pleased when I was president at the time to appoint her to the circuit court 
on the decision of the government uh, because she was the first woman circuit judge, as I recall. And then she went on to be a judge of the High Court and then she went on to the Supreme Court. And, you know, it was very important, the women who were chosen as judges in those days, because they tended to make a difference, to say the least of it. She certainly did make a difference. While she was judge of the circuit court, Catherine was appointed as the chair of the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation, 1994. In her cross-border body, she could bridge all of the differences. I was very proud of her, and I am still very proud of having taken part in that, because I think it was the first time when Sinn Féin was brought in to take part in an ordinary conversation between people on both sides of of what was then the conflict in Northern Ireland. This was the first time where we got people like Gerry Adams, that people were able to talk to them like politicians talk to each other across the board, as it were. Now, it wasn't all that easy to start off with by any means. Uh, Some people didn't want to talk to each other, but they settled down after a while. Seamus Mallon was the great friend in that Forum for Peace and Reconciliation. He was the one that I, I felt was such a leader in that peace process, and he was practical. Uh, he understood how much peace you could get and how much peace you couldn't get, as it were. He was an extraordinarily influential person, a man of very real goodness as well. While we, we were unable to get the DUP and the main unionist parties to take part. There were other smaller bodies of unionist people from the north who did take part. I'm not saying that it had achieved such a huge amount, but it did begin to break the ice and to make it easier for people to talk to each other. It had laid the grounds that were later able to develop in in further negotiations that led the peace processes as it were. When you look back, what would you consider your your greatest achievement? Oh, I, I don't sort of think that way. Um, I uh, I suppose, in some ways, the achievement of chairing the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation, of trying to reconcile those people in Northern Ireland, that would be more of an achievement to me than than anything else. And in a way, you kind of feel that perhaps perhaps we didn't try hard enough to, to keep going on, keep going on the sort of resolving of all the, the bitterness. Have we just let it sit so that it'll come out all over again? You know, it, I mean, the thought of another whole generation of that is is horrifying. Then, of course, when she became a judge, I mean, she wrote a lot of very important judgments, but it was interesting that she was the first circuit court judge to actually produce written judgments, even though the circuit court's judgments don't uh, have any presidential value. They don't bind anybody subsequently. It did help to clarify the law in relation to a lot of family law issues until she began to write 
judgments in the circuit court, family law decisions just disappeared really into the ether, were only known to those who had been directly involved. And there was no clarity at all around how the law was applied in the circuit court. And then, of course, she went on from that to become a high court and eventually a Supreme Court judge where her judgments did become the law. That groundwork was laid in the circuit court, and I think it is quite important the looking for that kind of clarity, that kind of interpretation of the law, which was necessary. I, I mean, I'm personally very committed to the idea of the administration of justice in public, which you know sounds like an abstraction, but I think it really goes to the heart of what democracy is all about, because if we elect people to pass laws, unless we know how those laws work, How do we know when they need to be changed or modified or amended? The sharp end of seeing how the laws work is in the courts. So while the criminal courts do operate in public and we do know, and in fact the reporting, for example, of crimes like rape and so on, while protecting the anonymity of the victims as they rightly do, that has driven a lot of the public discussion around violence against women and so on, and it has been, I think, helpful in pushing forward reform of the law in that area. But for far too long, we didn't have reporting of various aspects of family law, including the child protection aspect where the state gets involved in families to protect children and takes children into care. And again, if we don't know how that system is working, how are we going to know whether it needs improving and how it should be improved? And when I think about the contribution she made as a judge, so many cases stand out where her judgments are just extraordinary examples of her really scrutinising the state. And she had a huge impact on family law and she made many significant judicial statements on the rights of parents, both married and unmarried, and in particular pushed for I think, greater recognition of the rights of unmarried parents, which were non-existent at the time. The judgment, which I always think of because it may be one of my favourite ever judgments of an Irish judge ever because it's just so nuanced and so thoughtful, is in a case that's colloquially known as the Baby Anne case. And in the Baby Anne case, this two-year-old girl had been placed up for adoption by her biological parents. And Another couple had started the process of adopting her and she was very happily living with them. At that point, her parents decided to stay together and they sought to have their child returned to them because they now planned to live together as a couple. And at that point, they got married, which gave them very strong rights under the Irish constitution to any child of theirs. And because the adoption hadn't been completed, the question was, should the child be returned to her biological parents or should she remain with who she knew as her parents she had been living with for some time happily as a two-year-old girl? The Supreme Court decided that baby Anne had to essentially return to her biological parents, that that was what the constitution required because her biological parents now married, had these exceptionally strong rights in respect of their uh, their children and the best interests of the child were presumptively weighted toward their married parents. And Judge McGuinness concurred in that result. She felt that was the only result that she could reach in the case, that that's what the constitution required. But in doing that and in reaching that result, it was so clear that she was torn about this issue. She concludes her judgment 
by noting that she has called before in the Kilkenny incest report for constitutional change and almost flagging this as something that we have to consider. And she concludes then by saying, with reluctance and some regret, she would decide that the child had to be returned. And for me, reading that as a law student, I was studying law at the time, it really drove home to me how much judging is an empathetic practice where you have to really think about the lives of the people you're affecting, but also that sometimes the law requires a result that may not allow you to give full consideration to the various factors at play. And so Judge McGuinness felt this was the right legal conclusion, but was uncertain. And it wasn't absolutely clear that it was the right conclusion and the right thing to do for this child. And for me, it summed up the incredible complexity of the law. Judge McGuinness's judgment in the Baby Anne case was the perfect example of a judge doing their job to decide cases affirmatively and definitively, but also with modesty, knowing that you might not be right, knowing there's a risk of being incorrect. And for me, the best judges approach their task with humility as well as decisiveness. Catherine retired from the Supreme Court in 2006. She retired from that role, but not from her career. She went on to be president of the Law Reform Commission in 2012. She was appointed member of the Council of State for the second time. She was chair of the Irish Hospice Foundation Forum on the End of Life, to name but a few. I mean, she she clearly didn't retire. So that's obvious if you look at the kind of the different things she's done. I mean, she's been chair of the Law Reform Commission. She's been chancellor of NUI Galway. And she's been very active in the community and voluntary sector. Um, I know she's patron of the, the Irish Refugee Council. And she's been a big part, actually, of the campaigns around traveller children and around uh, children in, in, in direct provision. Catherine isn't only interested in children's rights and, and, and young people. She's also interested in what happens to people at the end of life. And you'll see she's provided a lot of support to the Irish Hospice Foundation. Isn't this just wonderful, the kind of contribution you're making to Irish life, that you don't just care about what happens to people when they're born and through their childhood. You're also thinking about what's happening to someone as they age and they grow older uh, and when they need to pass on and about their rights and entitlements at that stage in life. And I think that's kind of extraordinary that she has that kind of reach and influence in, in, in Irish society. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, that sounds that sounds rather grander than, than life really was. I mean, certain things would come up where you'd find yourself involved in. And, you know, there are other things that need to be looked at as well. I mean, for instance, in recent years, up to quite recently, I've been involved in a an organisation that is uh, assisting persons who leave prison in order to enable them to have further education or to at least to get employment or housing, basically to prevent them coming back into criminality and going back into prison. And there's all those sorts of rights as well that are so important that uh, there's so much still left to be done in the area of, for instance, looking after children who go into care and that I was just looking at the newspapers today, for instance, where there's accounts of various teenage children who are were supposed to be being looked after in various ways by our society but have, en- have ended up 
either committing suicide or being murdered or uh, dying of, of, you know, preventable diseases, as it were. There's still a lot to be done, I think. You know, I think she was not somebody who was a muddled thinker or she was very clear. And as I say, had this huge love of law, which and has this huge love of law, uh, as a number of us do, <clears throat> which means that we're never happy that we're we were always looking for uh, even better and more reform. And that, that's what I think of Catherine, that she still wants to change the world a bit. There's still plenty of issues that you're sitting looking at, even though you've got so old that you're not fighting any longer. You know? <laughs> but you're still singing. I mean, I'd sing away until I, I pass on, you know. And thank you, Catherine McGuinness, for using your voice to change the world a little bit for the better. Groundbreakers, Catherine McGuinness, is a curious broadcast production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. Produced, narrated and edited by Patricia Baker. Final mix, Dunal Corrigan, Contact Studio. Music by the Culwick Choir and original score by Jerry Horn. For more on the series, visit Newstalk.com.